So today is Columbus Day, and coincidentally, it's also Indigenous Peoples Day. And as I contemplated those two sides of the same coin, I realized that the conflict um, regarding American history and American heritage, the debate between nationalism and patriotism, centers around that theme of the indigenous people and the social dilemma, if you will, that our country is currently embroiled in can be traced back to that very moment. These will be the musings of today's episode of By Faith, the unscripted, unedited podcast by Lisa Noel Babbage. It's funny because as I was preparing for my students' work this week, and as I do every week, I check the calendar to see if there are any important days in history that should be referenced or any holidays, you know, or secondary federal holidays that are, you know, marked for this day. Now, I shouldn't say really celebrate it, but something that has been recognized, for example, Hispanic Heritage Month, breast cancer awareness, all of those sort of things are designed to give the American people a heart prick, if you will, a sense of consciousness to reflect on. And hopefully, I'm, I'm assuming the end goal of all of these types of recognitions is to spark an interest in the American people to become more well-versed in the topic. So, you know, breast cancer awareness, we should raise money for breast cancer, we should be aware of how many people are victims of breast cancer, all of these things come into play. So today we we mark Indigenous Peoples Day. And, uh, you know, being um, half Australian, I, I think about the plight of the Aboriginals and While my family is not Aboriginal, it's very much in my consciousness what has happened to their people as a result of British colonization, what continue to happen as a result of racism, and the amends that that government is attempting to make to those first-generation people, um, those indigenous people on that continent. Here in America, though, um, we have somewhat of a different story. I recently compared and reflected upon Australia's practice of discrimination, systemic racism that was part of not only the government, but the culture, because things were mandated by law. And that is one of the um, precipices upon which systemic racism can flourish. You know, if the, the root word of systemic is system. So there must be a system of racism in order for systemic racism to exist in its, in its purest forms. And of course, you could argue, argue outliers, but that's not the point of this conversation. The point is to draw your eye to the differences between a nation who fought to overcome racism and another nation that legislated racism. So in Australia, back at, um, I believe it was in 1904, the first prime minister was a racist. He um, held um, racist feelings towards the native people of Australia, the Aborigines, and to any other community of color. 
Um, his goal was to create an Aryan race in Australia and by and thereby make that British colony um, exceed expectation, if you if you will, and and truly shine. So in his uh, very first acts as prime minister and even leading up to that point, he had argued and arbitrated for um, racist legislation that would bar any individual of color from coming to Australia, uh, whether it be for business or pleasure. He put an all-out ban on um, immigration to Australia of people of color, and that's any color, um, but it was definitely targeted toward the darker pigmented peoples um, that favored the Australians, which would be Africans. And so that particular group was, um, you know, just targeted to for um, separation. And it was very different from the separate but equal that we saw in America, because this was something that did not legally end until 1970. Three, I believe, 1972, 73. So what you're talking about is an entire generation of people who were taught to to believe and um, that Blacks were inferior and perhaps to fear cross-contamination from the African population. And then they went so far after enacting all of these laws, they went so far as to kidnapping Aboriginal children of mixed heritage to breed out the Aboriginal culture. Now, I'm no expert on Aboriginal culture. As I said, my family is not Aboriginal. However, it's, it's very interesting if you look at the, the traditions in Aboriginal culture regarding their spirituality, their hunting grounds, their um, tribal customs, all were interfered upon by the British colonists who settled Australia, many of them were convicts. And so what you have in essence um, is a large population of undesirables, quote unquote, who came to a faraway land where indigenous people were and they attempted to subdue it and they attempted to subdue it by force. You know, we have a tendency as human beings to do what we're used to do what is familiar with us to act according to the traditions of which we have been raised. And you can imagine that the colonists who settled the Wild West of Australia and were dealing with a convict population, you know, they they ruled with an iron fist. You can definitely imagine that if you look at the rugged landscape, which is Australia, you, you recognize that it took a certain type of person to be able to survive that tundra and those conditions and literally being on the far side of the world. Yet you're contending with a group of people whose spirituality is far different than your own. Their way of doing things are far different. And their unwillingness to um, co-mingle, so to speak, um, may may cause offense. And so you have all of these things working together and then you insert a prideful and racist perspective and what it means for the indigenous people is destruction. So that generation of of children who were taken by the white 
colonists. They're called the, the Lost Generation. And even as recent as 2017, the government was making public decrees of apology for what was done to those aboriginals. And people want to contrast what America has done to rectify their racial tensions and the issues that we have in our country. Um, we know in American history that we fought a war to end slavery in America, a, a global practice, a global economic practice that was um, it was held by people of all colors. It really had nothing to do with um, pigment or melanin. It had to do with who was in power. So there were Africans who held African slaves. There were British who held African slaves. There were Indians who held Indian slaves. There were people from one side of the spectrum to the other that used slave labor as an economic tool. However, with the spreading of the gospel through England, an abolitionist movement formed. That movement was to abolish the practices of slavery everywhere. And the, they obviously started in their own backyard, which was England, and they began to do what it took to lobby Parliament to end this barbaric practice. And they brought slaves to testify on the behalf of the cause, and that spread to other countries. It spread to America. And we know that at the time when Abraham Lincoln, or prior to Abraham Lincoln, this whole idea of emancipating those that had been bound unfairly, unjustly, criminally, um, it garnered such steam in, um, in the world and definitely in the United States to where a war broke out as a result. And that civil war was not civil, of course. And one can argue states' rights all day long. That is not what that war was about. That war was about abolishing a barbaric practice in our land and ending the system of racism that brought Africans to this continent. Now, of course, especially in the South Democratic-run states, decided to impose an economic slavery on freed slaves. And it wasn't initially that this took place, but some years later, where when African former slaves were flourishing economically, that a set of laws was put in place to limit that growth. And, and that continued in this country, I would say, until the 1960s or 70s, around the same time that that law in Australia was abolished. Now, there's a couple of parallels here because the African slaves that were brought to America were not indigenous to this continent, but our Native American first generation obviously were. They did not participate in any civil rights uh, mo you know, movement. They did not um, petition our government um, in the way that the ancestors of slaves did. And yet many would argue their treatment was far worse because the land was, quote unquote, stolen from them. And I think, you know, there, we can't rewrite history and it's, 
it can be challenging to go back and try to figure out what is has been whitewashed and what is actually truth. But a couple of things we do know, we do know that the native tribes warred with each other. And that is not something that was seen in Australia among aboriginals. We do know that native tribes um, who joined together to form federations made pacts and deals with the white colonists who came to this nation for plunder. And as a result, the first generations died off. They lost their lands in many cases because they were outwitted, if you will, um, by the skillful tactics of the British who had colonized the entire known world at that point. However, you do have a group of uh, immigrants who came to this country, British, French, and otherwise, and they came for a freedom. And again, that struggle, that tension between those who live in this land and are seeking the greatest opportunity for all and those who live in this land and are seeking a greater opportunity only for themselves and how certain groups of people, indigenous among them, are caught in the crossfire. So I thought it to be very ironic that we mark Columbus Day on the same day that we mark Indigenous People Day, because many would say that Columbus raped the land and stole. Other people champion him as a hero navigator that, you know, got blown to this distant land of the free. And the, the dichotomy of those two arguments and the way that we try to rationalize what was just and what was unjust all comes into play in this conversation between Columbus and indigenous people. One thing I can say is that while the nation of Australia has continually tried to make up, at least uh, on the surface, they've tried to make up for what they've done to aboriginals, I can't uh, quantify the pain that Aboriginal families have felt as a result of colonization. And I also can't say that reparations of any kind have sufficiently met the wounds that those people have suffered and continue to suffer. However, to contrast that, the violent civil war that ended legal slavery in this country, and to follow that up with legislation that ended the economic systemic slavery of Jim Crow South, that is a complete contrast to what other nations have done to rectify quote-unquote race relations. In fact, America under President Trump has gone even further to rectify the injustices against uh, the ancestors of slaves. And I wager to say that the indigenous people of this land also have a benefit that can be gained by the current leadership and the current administration that attempts to make amends for the injustices of our past. We all can look in the rearview mirror of our own lives and see things that we would have done differently, see things that we realize were wrong, see things that we admittedly did that were wrong. How we make reparations, repenting, or amends for those things truly dictates the trajectory of healing that takes place. So in our own lives, when we find things have been done wrong, it's how do we compensate for those wrongs? How do we right those wrongs? And as a nation, 
we need to look at the same thing. And, and we can clearly see that we have not covered everything 100%, but what we have done is made continuous steps towards rectifying the impact of those wrongs and actually restoring the person from the harm that was given. And for some, we can recognize that those steps have been taken in fidelity and we can find, you know, the truth behind uh, the rhetoric. But for for others, they will continually cry, not enough. And my, my question is, at what time and at what point do we accept the good faith uh, efforts of others and decide to move forward as one? That is the true uh, evidence of healing. It's the true evidence of forgiveness, and it is the true nature of a people who serve a loving God, because we know within ourselves that without God's grace and mercy, we would not be able to walk on streets of gold one day. And, you know, I pray that as a country, we would begin applying that same set of guidelines and parameters to how we deal with the challenges that we find with the various ethnicities that dwell in this land, because it's not just limited to color. It's, it's age, it's sexual orientation, it is gender, it is socioeconomic standing. It is everything that makes us unique can also divide us when we come to the table with a wrong heart. This has been By Faith, the unscripted, unedited podcast by Lisa Noel Babbage.